All right. We have homework assignment due today, homework number five. If you have it now, I'll take it. I'm out of staples up here now, though, so if you want to staple it, I'm going to grab some staples between classes and between classes and class and lab, so I'll have staples, should have staples for the latter part of the class if you want to staple it together. Quiz number five on chapters 11 and 12 is up now and will be available through the end of the day on Monday, so you can look at that anytime. We're almost done with chapter 12. We'll have that done beginning of class today. I'll be through the last few slides on that. We'll be through chapter 12. And the exam coming up, chapters 10, 11, and 12 on Monday. And again, we'll be through chapter 12, so we'll be ready for that on we'll be ready for that on Monday. Observing night, I left in there, although I'm pretty sure don't don't bother because Sandy's supposed to clobber us right around Tuesday, so we're supposed to get clobbered. And in fact, when you look at the forecast going ahead right now, it doesn't just say rain, but it's actually saying heavy heavy rain or something like that. So we're supposed to get clobbered. We'll know better Monday. Maybe maybe Sandy will take some other turn or turn in or turn out to Atlantic. Who knows? But for right now, that doesn't look very, very promising. Quiz 5 is on there twice. Don't worry about the second one. That's for my other class. Uh, okay. Third set of solar observations will be due. That's Wednesday the 7th. So you can turn those in and then I'll have them back for you on Friday, which is when the la homework 6 will be due. And I'll give homework 6 out on Monday, I'll have that for you Monday with the exam, so you can pick that up right after you take the exam. Just what you always wanted after an exam is another assignment, I know. Maybe I should give it out before the exam. But that'll be there and I'll have that for you on, on Monday. So, any questions on what's coming up? No? No? All right. Picture of the day for today, a reflection nebula. So ties in with a couple chapters ago. Chapter 11 we talked about the nebulae. Reflection nebula was one of those types of nebula that we looked at. And a reflection nebula was, as it sounds, reflection of light. So we're seeing this blue light around these stars, which is light from those stars being reflected to us from the dust in this, in this cloud around it. So typically a reflection nebula is where stars have formed very recently. And that's the leftover material from the formation of the stars. That's what's left over that is, that is formed from what formed those stars. Didn't use all that material. We didn't go into forming them. A little bit was left over. Right now it's just sitting there sort of in a cloud around them, slowly being dispersed by the intense energy of these young stars that formed. But in the meantime, it reflects their blue light to us. And if you recall, dust is very good at reflecting blue light and not so good at reflecting red light. So that's why it tends to make it look very, very blue. Not just that the stars are blue, but that it's very much better at reflecting blue light as well. If you look further off to the right, you can see part of a dark nebula here. You see the almost complete absence of stars in part of it. And another nebula over here, which is some regions of very young stars and some star formation. So come back in 100,000 years, a million years, and that area on the right might look like the region on the left does right now. As these stars fully break out of theirs and fully land on the main sequence, then they may look a lot more like that. We'll see that dust cloud around them at that time. The other thing that you notice, going back even a previous chapter, is the colors of the stars. You've got some red stars and some blue stars on these. And if you look off to the left, you actually see both. You've got two real close together here, one very blue, 
one, very red. And if you recall, that tells you the temperatures. Blue star is very hot, three times the temperature of the sun. Red star is relatively cool, maybe about half the temperature of the sun. So you're seeing a big difference in the temperatures as well in these stars. And you see it not just in those ones I picked out, but if you look throughout, you see a number of there are stars that are extremely red. There's one. There's a couple there. Scattered throughout, those are among the coolest stars that we see. And you also see a number that are very blue, that have the bluish tinge to them. Not just the ones up in the nebula here, but some blue ones here and here and here. And scattered around, you'll see those. And again, remember that's telling you the temperatures. Roughly, not an exact number, but you can certainly tell looking at a red star and a blue star, you can certainly tell me which of those is hotter, which is cooler. So, questions, questions? No? We're just so excited to get to chapter 12. No, we're excited to get to 11 o'clock or your end of your last class, but if this is your last one. All right. Let's go on to chapter 12 then. I'm going to put these back up. These first three are the ones I went through last time, so I'm going to go through them kind of quickly. We looked at these last time, which was really just looking at the HR diagram through star clusters. Now we plotted out, I had you plot out a couple star clusters before. But what you would see, the only difference between these, these aren't looking at different star clusters. This is, this is theoretically looking at a single star cluster and just changing the time. So at time zero, when the first stars have reached the main sequence, up here, you've got a lot of stars. A lot of the stars like the sun or the much cooler stars aren't even close yet. They haven't reached the main sequence yet. They haven't actually begun their main sequence lifetime. That's because the more massive stars, big mass forms, collapses and forms quicker. So not only do those st bright stars, bright hot stars on the upper edge of the main sequence go through their lives faster, but they form quicker too. So as you see in the second diagram at about 10 million years, that looks a lot like one of the plots you did. You've got some stars leaving the main sequence. They've already used up all their hydrogen. They're done. They're heading off towards the red giant branch. Whereas some of these cooler stars, now stars like the sun right in the middle here are starting to reach the main sequence. But some of these very cool stars still haven't reached the, still haven't reached the main sequence yet. So there's actually times where you've had some stars have gone through their entire lives, gone, and some of the cool, faintest Smallest stars have not even reached the main sequence. Now when we go on a little bit more, after 100 million years, most of the stars now have reached the main sequence. You're still waiting on just these few little stragglers down at the end, but you're starting to see a more well-defined turnoff point. That's at about 100 million years, at about a billion years. Even better defined, you can sort of try to make a better idea of where where the stars are leaving the main sequence. And we can use that as an age determinant. How old is this cluster depends on where the biggest stars are on the main sequence. Because they will, they will leave the main sequence pretty much in the order. We're working their way down the main, working their way down it. So the earliest ones that formed way up in the upper corner will be the first ones to leave. Then these ones will leave, then these ones. It'll work its way down to the very coolest, faintest, smallest stars. But that turnoff point becomes much clearer and when we look at older clusters it's a very good way to determine the age. How old is that cluster? We just have to look for where the stars are turning off, where they're leaving the main sequence. 
And then the last one where we finished up last time was after about 10 billion years. Now we start to see a lot more. The turnoff point, now there's no stars on the main sequence up there. All the O stars are gone, B's, A's, F's. G stars are just leaving. G stars are just leaving the main sequence. All the K's and the M's are still there, but the G stars are just, so stars like the sun. If you had a cluster that's 10 billion years old, there are a number of these out there. You plotted one of them, the globular cluster you plotted, was something very similar to this. If we had lived in that globular cluster, our sun would have formed, would have been 10 billion years old, would have been one of those stars that was heading off to the red giant branch. Where our sun formed now, we've still got 5 billion years to go. It formed more recently than those. But you also see all the stages that we talked about. You see a lot more of those. You see that, you see the subgiants as it starts to leave the main sequence, as it's exhausting its hydrogen, how it goes up, almost up to the peak there where the hydrogen flash occurs, helium, sorry, helium flash. So helium burning all of a sudden begins. It jumps down to the horizontal branch, stays there for a little while while it burns helium into carbon. Doesn't last there very long because it takes a lot more energy to support the star. Helium burning doesn't give you near the amount of energy that hydrogen burning did. So it won't last near as long on the horizontal <coughs> branch and then it will head back up to the giant branch again. And then eventually stars like these will end up as white dwarfs. So they'll end up down here just to cool, just cooling off. So nothing else changing with them. They've, they're just the collapsed core of the star. There's nothing else going on. There's no energy production. And that white dwarf will sit there quite happily as long as it's all by itself. If it's in a binary system, and not just in a binary system, but in a very close binary system, there are some things that can happen to it. It can um, go nova if it's close enough, depending on its mass, or it can actually go supernova if it is just the right mass. So that's where we had finished up. I just wanted to go through that and summarize that one more time as we'd gone through that the last time. But you're going to get you're to see the white dwarf stars. And when we come back in the next chapter, we talk about some of the other types of remnants. You know, what happens? White dwarf stars are things like the sun, which are pretty much all of these stars, till you get to these very most massive ones. These are the ones that actually can form some, another kind of remnant. They can actually do something else. Most of the stars on the HR diagram will eventually end up as a white dwarf. So most of these will eventually end up in that, in that corner. Now I'm going to go through and show you this again just with some images. So you're going to see some of this again, but now you're actually going to see some pictures of the clusters. You're going to see the same kind of idea we have, we have here. <coughs> so this is an example, thank you, of a double cluster, H and Chi Persei. It's a very young cluster. How do we know it's a very young cluster? Well, we've got a nice main sequence here. Nice main sequence goes all the way up to some of the hottest stars. You've got stars going up to 20 and almost 30,000 degrees that are still on the main sequence. You can see maybe a few of those, the very upper ones, just starting to turn off. It's very hard to determine that in the youngest clusters. This one may be about 10 million years old, or not more than 10 million years old, just because we see all of these very hot stars still on the main sequence. But even 10 million years, is too long for some stars. There are still stars that will not last 10 million years. And you can see them on this diagram already. There are red giant stars in this cluster. 
So those red giant stars must have been the ones that were even further up and have now zipped off over to this edge here and are now you know, burning helium or carbon or something else in their, in their cores. Where exactly they are is not something we can see and not something we can tell directly based on where they are. But they're over there towards the later stages of their, of their lives. But this is a very young cluster. Looks like an open cluster, looks like some of the clusters that we've looked at before. Not gravitationally bound together and that we see a lot of that in some of these youngest, some of these youngest clusters. Now we go a little further on, the Hyades cluster. Nicely visible in the morning sky right now, beginning in the evening coming up shortly. Or if you wait up late, wait late enough. But right now it's nicely, nicely visible in the morning uh, with a little bit up, to, up into the right of Orion. But again, you've got a very well-defined main sequence. There's where most of the stars are forming. You've got a turnoff point where these stars have left the main, where all the stars are le- have left the main sequence. And you've got a few red giants. You also have some white dwarfs starting to appear. A little bit older cluster, about 600 million years. So a lot older than the 10 million years we looked at for the first cluster. 600 million years, about. So even stars now, we're starting to lose stars that are, the O stars are gone, the B stars are gone, you're starting to lose a lot of the A stars. They're starting to leave the main sequence after about 600 million years. We're still not even close to what we need for the sun. We haven't even hit one-tenth, or a little over one-twentieth of how long the sun would live. So very short time compared to the sun, very long time for some of these stars, and we no longer see them. You notice that the main sequence just cuts off. It's gone. There aren't any stars way up here that have formed. And that's one of the benefits of looking at a cluster, is because we can sort of learn about stellar evolution by looking at all these different clusters. Where are the stars just leaving the main sequence? So this is about 600 million years old. And if we go a little bit older, there's a globular cluster. You plotted one of those too. About 10 to 12 billion years old, meaning that stars like the sun are leaving the main sequence. So those G stars down here are now the ones that are no longer on the main sequence but are actually working their way out through the subgiant branch up to the giants, down, down to horizontal branch. So they sit there, they'll burn helium. And then there's, uh, then they go back up the giant branch again to even giant, bigger stars. A lot of white dwarfs, ton of white dwarfs now as you've had a lot more stars with times to for, time to form white dwarfs. And recall that the white dwarfs are hard to see just because they are so faint. So you'll notice that there's not a lot of white dwarf stars. There's a lot more white dwarf stars in that image than we detect easily. There's also a lot more red dwarf stars. If you get down here, you'll notice that there's very few stars down at the bottom. That's not because there aren't many red dwarf stars. There's a lot of them, but they're very faint. This is one one hundredth the brightness of the sun. This is one ten thousandth the brightness of the sun. That's hard to see if you're looking at things that are hundreds or thousands of light years away. Those things are hard to detect. They're there. We just can't see them because they're so faint. So we miss a lot. We miss a lot of them. You miss a lot of the faintest stars are actually missed over here. But you can certainly see the white, the white dwarf branch and you can see well-defined main sequence and you start to see all of those areas that we talked about in this chapter when we went through the evolution of a star like the sun. Because that's exactly what's going on in this right now. 
right at this point in this cluster, that's about the time where a star like the Sun is now working its way through all these different stages. So some of the stars, again, we just like to say they formed at the same time. Well, they didn't exactly. Some formed a little bit. Some might have formed a million years earlier or a million, you know. There's some variation in time, so some of them are at different stages here. So all the stars like the Sun, some of them are working up towards the red giant branch. Some of them have probably gotten it. Some of them are probably here. So there's all sorts of ones that are scattered around as that formed. So where we see the stellar evolution, we can see it in the star clusters. We can actually see what a star like the Sun would be doing in a, at, at its end of its life in about, at about, in about 5 billion years now for us, about 5 billion years more for the Sun. All right. So finishing up here, the cycle of star formation is very important for us. We wouldn't be here without it. It's a cycle. We start, we start, do we, where do we start? And it really doesn't matter. We can start just about anywhere. But let's start with the interstellar medium up at the top. You have some clouds of gas and dust. They form stars. So stars form. Orion Nebula. They go through their lives. Especially the most massive stars. Those are the ones that explode. Those are the ones that push material back out into the interstellar medium and form the next generation of stars. So stars form, they explode, you have planetary nebulae that go out, push some of the outer layers of the star out into space. That enriches the, gives more material in the interstellar medium, but especially the supernovae. The supernovae are the ones that actually send heavy elements out into the, heavy, out into space. We wouldn't be here without those. Right? When the universe formed, it was hydrogen and helium, and that was about it. Nothing else. So just those two elements. Nothing to make up a planet. You know, most of the atoms in this room are not hydrogen and helium. Yeah, there's some. We've got a lot of water in our bodies. But not a lot of them are hydrogen and helium. The only way to get those other elements out back out into space is through a supernova explosion. Planetary nebula doesn't help you. Right? Planetary nebula was just those outer layers of the star getting expelled out into space. And if you recall, the outer layers of the star didn't change. They were still hydrogen and helium. They have some mixtures of other stuff, but they're mostly hydrogen and helium. Yes, the sun will fuse and will have a nice big carbon core, but that carbon isn't getting back out into space. That core is just going to sit there and sit there and sit there for a trillion years. Nothing will ever happen with it. So in order to get those materials that make up everything in us and everything in this room, everything on the Earth, came from all these supernova explosions that happened over billions of years early on in the history of the universe and now enriched the interstellar medium. Made it so that instead of being 90% hydrogen and 10% helium by number of atoms, now it's, you know, 89.5% 89.5% and, you know, round off, but get that extra fraction of a percent that we need that makes up, uh, makes up us. So if you think about that, you know, the atoms that make us up, we're at one point in a star. And we're one point in a supernova. So you've had direct experience of a supernova explosion. No, there's no conscious memory of it for you, but you, you were there. You were there. The bits of you were, the bits of you were there in a supernova explosion, or maybe multiple ones, who knows, billions of years ago. You were actually, you were actually there. So you've seen a supernova explosion up close. Because that's the only place to get iron and everything else out of your body, iron, zinc, everything else in there out of your body and back 
into to make up the next generation of stars. But it goes on and on. So there will be new stars going supernova, forming new stars, and constantly enriching the material. All right, so I have a, I think that was the end of this one, except for the summary. So let's go through the summary. All right. So let me summarize again, give you the, just the review. Hopefully help for the exam coming up, right? Uh, once the hydrogen is gone in the core, so you've used up the hydrogen in the core, now you still, you, don't, you still have to have an energy source. You can't just turn off all the energy sources or the star collapses. You need something going on there. So that core does start to contract, but, there's height, but it heats up the area around it, so there's hydrogen burning in a core around that shell. That core contracts, and you'll find when the core contracts, the outer layers expand. So the core contracts, the outer layers get bigger and bigger and bigger, and cools off. And that's when we go from being a main sequence star to a red giant star. At some point, as that core contracts, the temperature is going to continue to rise. It's going to get hotter, 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 hotter. Eventually, you get hot enough that now that it's all helium, you can't fuse hydrogen, but you can fuse helium together. So helium will begin to fuse, giving it a new energy source. In a star like the sun, it's called a helium flash, where it's almost a runaway explosion that takes some energy to actually re-expand that core that had collapsed so dense. And it becomes, it goes into a, as the core expands, again, we had a red giant, we start to go back down to the red giant, to that horizontal branch. Eventually, it'll go back as that helium is used up, it'll go back up the red giant branch again, become very large, red giant, red supergiant. Eventually, it just gets so big that it can't hold on to its outer layers. They expand off into space, so it loses its outer layers, all that's left is the core what sits there and slowly cools off. Now a nova, we mentioned nova as part of a white dwarf. A nova is a, something that can happen when a white dwarf has a companion star that is a regular main sequence star or red giant star that transfers material to it. You build up that, that material on the surface of the star and eventually <laughs> you get enough, enough, enough hydrogen there, enough pressure built up on it that it will all of a sudden um, burn. It'll start burning. The surface of that star will start burning and it will push all that material off into space. So that's material, that's what we're going to see. You're going to see that nova resulting from material that you've collected onto that star gets so hot that it starts to burn. So you're putting enough material on that white dwarf star. Now that was for a star like the Sun for more massive stars. They're hot enough to fuse carbon. Sun cannot fuse carbon. Sun will never get hot enough. And then heavier elements up to iron. And if you recall, iron was where you ran out of a source of energy. There is no way to get iron energy out of iron. If you fuse two iron atoms together, you lose energy. If you break an iron atom apart, you lose energy. Iron is the most tightly bound of all the nuclei on the periodic table. There's no way to get energy from it. So when it gets hotter, eventually it gets hot enough, you fuse those hydrogens together, but you lose a little bit of energy. It cools off the core a little bit, which collapses it more, tries to increase the temperature, and fuses more, more iron. It becomes a runaway. But a runaway that doesn't actually heat anything up, but causes it to collapse. You cool off the core, cause it to collapse, rebound, and explode outward as what we call a type 2 supernova. So a type 2 was an end of, a massive, end of the life of a massive star. A type 1 supernova 
is almost exactly like a nova. Same process, exactly the same process. You have a big star transferring material to a white dwarf, but that white dwarf has a limit as to how big it can be. A white dwarf is held up by the pressure of its electrons and particles pushing against each other. If you get enough material there, eventually you overcome that pressure and it collapses. It starts to collapse and it's essentially a carbon explosion. You start burning carbon in that star and that tears the entire star apart because it burns not just in the core but throughout the entire star all at once. Now that's a state that the sun will not have to worry about even though the sun will become a white dwarf. It won't be near massive enough. Sun will lose a little bit of its mass as it goes through its life and will not be you know, one solar mass and it needs to be over 1.4 times the mass of the sun to get here. So we're, no, we're never going to see this with the sun. Plus the sun doesn't have a companion there. There's no other star around it to collect enough material to push it over that limit. And then finally where we kind of finished up today, the heavy elements are formed in the cores. So formed in the stellar cores. That's great, but you know what? If you form a lot of um, copper and oxygen in the core of a star, that doesn't get it out to the rest of the universe. It can be all trapped there. And you hey, you freighted all this carbon. But unless you have a supernova explosion, something to tear it apart and get anything back there, there's no way to get all of those elements. And we understand stellar evolution by looking at the star cluster. That's one of the ways we can understand. Now one of the things I was just thinking about that I really didn't mention, we talked about hydrogen fusion in the stars. We talked about hydrogen going to helium. We talked about helium going to carbon, to oxygen, to neon. And I got you up to iron. And I said those cores could get up to iron. And then they became unstable and tore themselves apart. The rest of these elements, that means anything up there past iron, is formed in that supernova explosion. So these were formed you know, by regular burning processes in the stars. It was during that intense explosion when you form things like gold or silver or mercury or lead. Those were actually formed during the supernova explosion itself. So I just thought I'd think about it. I, only, I stopped with iron. I didn't tell you where everything else came from. It was during that supernova explosion, that intense release of energy as it's exploding, that instant when it actually formed all the other elements there. So not only were you put off to space in a supernova, but some, some of the bits of you were actually formed, would have been formed in that. You know, zinc would be beyond that. You have zinc in your body, one of the minerals you need. Well, that was actually formed during a supernova explosion. Not before and pushed out into space during it, but actually formed during the supernova explosion. All right, and I think that was, yes. Questions on chapter 12? I have some, but I'll give you those on Monday. <laughs> I'm cruel, I'm sorry. All right. So now we've got to go on to chapter 13 then. Chapter 13, sort of related to supernovae. We're going to look at that a little bit again, but really it's what's, le what's left over. So what's left over after the supernova explosion? And that's really the subject of this whole chapter is those other remnants. 99% of the stars will form a white dwarf. They'll have a white dwarf left over after they're done. It's that tiny percentage, that 1% of stars that actually explode as a supernova that leaves something more interesting. Here's a very colorful picture of a supernova remnant of what's left over at the, after the, at the end of that. But there is, the supernova may tear itself apart completely. That's the type 1, that's the white dwarf star that tore itself apart. Okay, 
there's not much left there. But a star that collapses, a more massive star, might leave a remnant at the center. Most of that material gets thrown back out into space, but it might leave a little bit at the core. Maybe two or three times the mass of the sun. It's a lot, right? Not the big chunk there. That's, more, that's two or three suns sitting there. But you have to remember, the stars that are doing this might be 30 times the mass of the sun, 40 times, 50 times the mass of the sun. So if we're only keeping two or three, we're just keeping a little tiny piece of it there. But that little tiny piece might be left over. And it becomes more compact even than a white dwarf. A white dwarf was something like the sun the size of the Earth. These things get compacted down even more. So what we're going to look at here, first of all, we'll look at today probably are the neutron stars. We'll look at neutron stars, pulsars. Um, Really the same thing. Pulsars are just how neutron stars were really discovered. They're a special case of a neutron star. Um, Neutron star binary systems. So what happens if you get two neutron stars orbiting each other? Gamma ray bursters are one possible result of that. Then the last, well probably won't get to till next week, save black holes for next week. Um, Black holes, which we'll have to go back and talk about gravity again. We did gravity with Newton. Now we're going to come to the current theory of gravity and go through Einstein. Einstein's theories of relativity because they tie in directly into black holes and to our understanding of black holes. What is it like? What would it be like to travel near a black hole? Are we in a black hole right now? Possibility, actually. You can be within a big, big black hole. You can be within it and not even know it. Could survive for a long, long time. There's real, real giant black holes. You know, there's the whole universe one giant black hole. Well, we can't escape from it. It can't leave the universe anyway, so don't you know. I'm, I'm jumping ahead chapters now. Let me not do that. <laughs> but that, that's, we actually do get to that sort of at the end of the, at the, end of the class when we talk about, you know, about the universe. You know, where's the edge of the universe? Where's the center of the universe? All of that, all of that good stuff. But what, is it, what would it be like? Well, we can theorize, based on Einstein's theories, what it would be like to travel near a black hole or travel into a black hole. And what, what would it be like? What would you see? What evidence do we have for black holes? They can't see them, right? Nothing escapes from a black hole, so how do we see it? We do have observational evidence. They do have a couple properties that you can measure. They have a mass. So if you have a black hole, for example, orbiting another star, you can see that star. You can see it tugging on that star. And you can determine that mass that way. So you can actually determine, detect a black hole indirectly. And there's some other things that we can do to look at that too that we'll look at here. So, neutron stars. And again, I mentioned some of this already. After a type 1 supernova, that was the white dwarf that collapsed. Got too massive for itself and collapsed. There's nothing left. That that started carbon burning throughout the entire star at once and that ripped the entire thing apart. There also wasn't a whole lot of material there to start off with. Right? We know exactly how big a type 1 supernova, we know it was exactly 1.4 times the mass of the sun when it started. Because anything smaller than that, it was still sitting there, it just would have been a nova. Anything much larger than that, it wouldn't have been stable in the first place. So there's nothing left over. All that material is pretty much thrown off. Could there be something little tiny left? Maybe. But nothing significant. But after a type 2 supernova, when that core collapses, turns to iron and collapses, and then explodes back outwards, you could leave some of the material behind. You could actually smash 
You know, you had electrons and protons. You had a big group, a big cluster of those with that core. You had all the protons and all the neutrons, or the protons, neutrons, electrons. If you combine those protons and those electrons, positive charge and negative charge combine, they wipe each other out. You got a neutral charge now, and you form a whole bunch of neutrons. So what you've really done is you've taken that star, taken something the mass of the sun or even a little bit more, and you've wiped out all the space within the atoms. Not just between the atoms. That's what you did to get it to the size of the Earth. But now you got rid of all the space within the atom. There's nothing left. You've got a giant atomic nucleus. So a neutron star, how it gets its name, it's a big ball of neutrons. And it's really an atomic nucleus. So it's a gigantic atomic nucleus, atomic nucleus that you could actually see. You're made up of so many billions and billions and billions upon billions upon billions of atoms. But you can't see all those nuclei. This would be a nucleus that you could actually see, just a big ball of neutrons. It would be as dense as an atomic nucleus, which is quite, quite, which would be quite, quite dense. You think of all the empty space that exists here. If you take a neutron star, if you do this collapsing, again, take a star like the sun, condense it down to the size of the Earth, you're squeezing out all the space in between the atoms. So you've taken the stu- something the size of the sun to the size of the Earth. If you squeeze out all that space within the atom, then get down just to the nucleus size, that's about 10 kilometers across. So they'll have a mass about the size of one to three solar masses, depending, but extremely small. There's one, there's Manhattan Island, you know, 10 kilometers across. But you've still got all the mass of the sun, or more, maybe two or three times the mass of the sun. Size is about the same either way. But down to about 10 kilometers. You've still got all the gravity there. So you could put one of those, at the, replace the sun with a one solar mass neutron star. Well, it'd get dark, right? It would get darker be a lot smaller, sun wouldn't look near as big in the sky, but gravitationally it wouldn't change anything. One solar mass is one solar mass and we'd still orbit around it just as we orbit around the sun. Could replace it with a black hole of one solar mass, nothing would change. Get to that on black hole, you know, black hole, it's a giant vacuum cleaner, it's going to suck everything in. Well, turn the sun into a one solar mass black hole right now, it's going to get dark and cold, but The Earth isn't going to care. It's going to happily orbit around that. It's the same amount of mass. So it doesn't change anything about the gravity. The gravity is exactly the same as it was before. The size is just what has changed. Making, as you can understand, these objects are very tough to detect. Right? We were looking at things. We saw some white dwarfs. Those are things the size of the Earth that are very hot. We could see some of those if they weren't too far away. But if we're looking for neutron stars, they're even harder to find just because they're so tiny. They're so small that their area was so, their surface area is so tiny, we're not going to be very hard to be able to see them. Now, neutron stars have a size and a mass that we already talked about. They also have a couple other things that are important that will come into how we actually detected the first of these about pushing 50 years ago now. They rotate. Okay, stars spin, the sun spins once a month or so. And we know what happens to something when it spins, right? If it collapses down and it spins, it's going to spin faster and faster and faster. So the ice skater pulling their arms in, they start spinning nice and slow, pull your arms in, you speed up. 
You start spinning faster. Well, a star is going to do the same thing. You've taken all that material that was out here, you condensed it down. Now that star is going to be spinning with a fraction, a fraction of a second. You have some, some that spin in with periods of, you know, ten, once every 10 or 20 seconds. You have some that spin a couple times a second. And there are actually some that spin even faster. There are some that will spin tens or hundreds of times a second. So you can imagine how fast, I mean, you think about things only 10 kilometers across, but you're still whipping it around just at the edge of being able to tear it apart. Of that, the force of that spin just being enough, almost enough to tear it apart. They're going to spin extremely quickly. And there are some that have been detected that can spin hundreds of times every second. Pretty quick. I can't spin around 100 times a second. Be lucky to spin around once a second. They're spinning extremely, extremely fast. The other thing that happens as they collapse is their magnetic fields get stronger. So if you recall with the sun, we condensed those magnetic field lines and made a stronger magnetic field line because of the way it twisted it up in its rotation. Well, imagine now we take all those magnetic field lines that were spread out very wide over the entire surface of the sun and we collapse them down to 10 kilometers. All of a sudden, that magnetic field becomes many hundreds, thousands, millions of times stronger than the magnetic field was before. Magnetic field of the sun overall isn't all that strong. Roughly that of the Earth. But if you could condense that all down, condense all those magnetic field lines to something a fraction of the size, something only a few kilometers across, then you're going to have a much stronger magnetic field. So these are things that are very small, but still have a lot of mass, spin very quickly, and have very strong magnetic fields. All right, on to pulsars. We're not off neutron stars quite yet. This is one of the first detections of a what we call the pulsar. A pulsar, back in late 1960s, objects were looked at that were found. These were radio astronomy. It was relatively new. It was just coming in. It had started in, really started in the 30s, but got real big in the 50s after World War II. And you know, bigger dishes were being developed and objects were being looked at. And we found objects that were emitting regular pulses. So a pulse, a pulse, a pulse. And as you look through it here, you can see you're getting a pulse about every second and a half or so. You're getting a pulse from this object in the sky. Could be a scary thing to find, right? You're getting this very regular pulses from the sky. Now we had no understanding of what I'm going to go through and tell you as to how these actually work now. But one of the first things that was thought of this, you know, is it a, is it a sign of life? Is it a signal? I mean, how, how many other things give you? I mean, nothing else in astronomy gives you anything that regular. Every one, and it wasn't just exact, it wasn't just that it was you know, oh, about every one and a half seconds or so, you know, about every one and a half seconds, it was maybe 1.5362, you know, how many decimal, significant decimal points could you get? Only way we knew of on Earth to get something like that was something artificial that would give you that exact of a number. You know, not that it was, you know, 1.5, then 1.6, then we would have understood it as something. How could you get anything? I mean, a star could not vary this quick. A galaxy could not vary this quick, could not change its intensity in terms of seconds. They're much too big. And in fact, so the first thing thought of, and in fact it was, you know, named LGM1. Little green men. No. 
I don't think it was necessarily the first thing they thought that, oh, maybe this is, you know, here it is, go publish that we found extraterrestrial life. But it was certainly one of those possibilities that made sense based on finding something that regular in their numbers. And it was because we had, up to that time, never detected anything that was that small spinning that fast. So this pulsar is really a neutron star that we're detecting sending out pulses of light. So it's a very fast spinning neutron star which actually pulses in the radio part of the spectrum. It sends beams of radiation out and as that beam passes across the Earth we detect a pulse of radiation. It spins very quickly. Again, this is one of the slower ones. This one takes almost a second and a half to spin once. That's a slow pulsar. Again, there are ones that spin 10 times a second, 100 times a second, much faster. <coughs> but it was the first detection then of a neutron star. Again, not directly. You couldn't see the thing, but you could see the evidence for it. Nothing else could spin that quick. If we tried to take the sun and spin it every second, Okay? What happens when you try to spin something, if you try to spin something that's not, that's just a gaseous blob very fast? It's going to rip itself apart. Right? It's going to tear itself apart just because it's spinning that fast. So if you tried to collapse the sun down, it's not going to be able to spin near that fast. You need something very tiny. It takes something that is only a few kilometers across that could be the this, this biggest thing that could actually spin this quickly. So why is it flashing on and off? It's like a great lighthouse out in space. And this is the diagram here shows the neutron star. So here's the neutron star. Very strong magnetic field. Much stronger than the Earth, much stronger than the Sun, much stronger than anything else we've looked at so far. So it confines, if you remember, the magnetic field is very good at confining charged particles. So charged particles are therefore only allowed to leave as this neutron star spins. The only way they can come off, they can't come out this way. They can't cross these very intense number of magnetic field lines. They can't get out this way. They can't get out this way. The only ways they can get out are through these little cones, these beams, at the magnetic poles. Same reason that we get aurora only near the north and south magnetic poles of the Earth. That's where the particles can get through the magnetic field. It's the only way these particles can actually get off. So as strong jets are emitted by there, and if, as typically happens on the Earth, right, we have the Earth's north pole is up here, but the magnetic pole is slightly off. If they're not exactly lined up, then as this spins, these form a big cone out in space. So they're whipping around like this, and if we happen to be in the path of one of those, we'll see a pulse from it. We'll see a beam of radiation every time it points itself at us. Just like a lighthouse, as that light beam comes around, when it points towards you, you get the big beam of light. The rest of the time, you don't see anything. When this beam of radiation points at us, we get a pulse. So that's what we were seeing in that previous graph, was just that little jump in the little line was when we were, that beam of radiation was passing right towards us. So it's going to mean that this star is really going to appear to blink on and off. It's going to be bright when that beam is pointing at us for that tiny fraction of a second. The rest of the second it's going to be dark. It's going to be bright again when it passes by us again. And again, these things are spinning. First one we looked at is about every second and a half, roughly. The other one, some of them are spinning 
three, four, five times a second, ten times a second. So it's whipping around there. And every time that beam passes towards us, we're going to see that beam of radiation. And we see it primarily in the radial part of the spectrum. That's where most of the <coughs> pulsars were first discovered, was in the radial portion of the spectrum, because there's a lot of radio radiation that comes from these. In some of the most intense ones, some of the youngest, some of the more energetic ones, you can actually see it in visible light. So there are some where you can see these with visible images, where you can see, take a picture of it, and if you take just a flash picture, you know, click picture, like you'd take with a regular camera, not a typical astronomical one where you'd expose it for many minutes or an hour. But if you just take a very fast picture, and you take it at the right second, you see the image, you see the star, take it at a fraction of a second later, you see nothing. You only get it if you happen to get it when that beam is pointing right at you. So you'll actually see a star that blinks on and off. Not like the twinkling of the atmosphere. This is really the star is physically visible only when this beam of radiation passes through us, passes by us. That's where all the radiation is intense. Now that doesn't mean the star is not glowing. It's very hot, so it is putting out a lot of electromagnetic radiation, which can come through these and does glow in all directions. But again, it's so small. It's so small that you can't really see it otherwise. Now, what happens with these is that they slow down. So over time, a pulsar would slow down, radiating away a lot of energy. You're losing some energy. It's going to start to slow down. So instead of spinning once every one and a half seconds, it's going to be every two seconds, and three seconds, and four, and five, and 10, and 20. Eventually, it's going to weaken. That amount of radiation is going to weaken. It's not, the magnetic field is no longer strong, and it's not confined. So all of a sudden, after millions of years, you're going to have a hard time detecting that neutron star. So when we see these pulsars, we're seeing the very young ones, things that formed in the last million years or so or less. As they get more than tens of millions of years old, they're pretty much invisible. Can we ever see one? Yeah, there's a couple cases where we've been able to detect a neutron star all by itself that was not a pulsar. But it's much harder to see, again, because you're looking for something 10 kilometers in size, way out there in space someplace. And if there's nothing else associated with it to sort of make it stand out, not that it's tugging on another star if it's in a binary system, it's very hard to find. Now pulsars are visible, but they're only visible right, if, you're lo if the jets point towards us. If that lighthouse beam doesn't point towards you at some point, you're not going to see it. If you're way up above it, or way below it, you're not going to get that bright flash of light as the lighthouse beam passes by you. Pulsars are the same way. We're not going to see them unless the jets are pointing right towards us. So that means that pulsars are just a tiny fraction of the neutron stars. They're only the ones that happen to be pointing in the right direction. Their beams happen to point in the right direction. And not only are they pointing in the right direction, but they're young enough that they're still energetic enough for us to detect. Anything that's not pointing the right way, we're never going to see. Anything that is you know, too old, too, moving too, go, rotating too slowly, not enough energy for us to see, we're not going to be able to see those. So we're only seeing the pulsars that we see are only a tiny fraction of likely what exists out there in terms of neutron stars. They're just one form of a neutron star. So a pulsar and a neutron star are really the same thing. 
Pulsar is just a special case where we happen to be seeing these beams. But they're really the same. The prod, the, the, what's going on there is exactly the same. Now here's an example. I told you you can see this in the on phase and the off phase. Well, this is the center looking at the Crab Nebula here. Crab Nebula is a famous supernova remnant from the year 1054. So star that exploded as we saw it almost a thousand years ago. And upper is the entire remnant of the entire image of that remnant. If we zoom in down to where the core is, there's the pulsar. We can actually see it in a longer image because we're going to get all those pulses added up over time. And if you if you zoom in and take those instantaneous pictures, here's a clip where it was on. There the beam is pointing towards us when we flash the picture. Here's the same image, exactly the same, because here's one, two, one, two, this one down here. You see all those three are exactly the same, but that one's gone. Didn't go anyplace. If we took an image a fraction of a second later, it would have been back. But that's sort of showing the on and the off phase of one of these pulsars. You can see it, now you see it, now you don't. It's still there, but you can actually see this one. And this is actually visible part of the spectrum. The Crab, the crab Nebula, their pulsar, is only about 1,000 years old. It's still extremely energetic, meaning that not only do we see it in the radio, but we can actually see it in the visible part of the spectrum. So we can actually see it flash on and off in the visible if you could watch it closely enough. If you could take images of it, you could get a bunch, whole bunch of on and off phases of that pulsar. And there's another, it's not just one pulsar there, there's actually another one, which I recall is behind, actually well behind it, but happens to be in the same general direction in space. But again, I told you these fade off over millions of years, a thousand years, long time for us. Things have changed a little bit on Earth in a thousand years. Things for the pulsar have not changed. It still just exploded, you know, yesterday to it. So you can actually look in the gamma ray portion of the spectrum, the most intense, Said the first ones we detected were way out in the radio part of the spectrum, but the very youngest ones we can still detect pulsing on and off, and you can see it here in gamma rays up on the top, where you can see it's brighter or fainter in gamma rays. So we can actually see that, and you can see it pulse in, ga- in gamma rays as well. All right. Well, we're about set there. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Again, the exam goes through chapter 12, so this little bit on pulsars and neutron stars will be saved for the next exam. We're doing that on Monday. Yay. And then on Wednesday, I'll come back and pick up on pulsars. I'm just about, I think I'm just about done with pulsars. I've got a little bit to go, and then I'm going to go on to the black holes, which is a big chunk of this, of this chapter. So if you want to go ahead and take your break while I get everything set up for your lab, we'll do that. Yay!